Section thirty two of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Chapter thirteen, in which the foregoing story is farther continued. My fellow collegiate had now entered me into a new scene of life. I soon became acquainted with the whole fraternity of sharpers, and was let into their secrets, I mean into the knowledge of those gross sheets which are proper to impose upon the raw and unexperienced, for there are some tricks of a finer kind, which are known only to a few of the gang who are at the head of their profession, a degree of honour beyond my expectation. For drink, to which I was immoderately addicted, and the natural warmth of my passions prevented me from arriving at any great success in the art which requires as much coolness as the most austere school of philosophy. And Mr. Watson, with whom I now lived in the closest amity, had unluckily the former failing to a very great excess, so that instead of making fortune by his profession, as some others did, he was alternately rich and poor, and was often obliged to surrender to his cooler friends, over a bottle which they never tasted, that plunder that he had taken from calls in the public table. However, we both made a shift to pick up an uncomfortable livelihood, and for two years I continued of this calling, during which time I tasted all the varieties of fortune, sometimes flourishing in affluence, and at others being obliged to struggle with almost incredible difficulties. Today wallowing in luxury, and tomorrow reduced to the coarsest and most homely fare my fine clothes being often on my back in the evening, and at the pawn-shop the next morning. One night, as I was returning penniless from the gaming-table, I observed a very great disturbance, and a large mob gathering together in the street. As I was in no danger from pickpockets, I ventured into the crowd, where upon inquiry I found that a man had been robbed and very ill-used by some ruffians. The wounded man appeared very bloody, and seemed scarce able to support himself on his legs. As I had not therefore been deprived of my humanity by my present life in conversation, though they had left me very little of either honesty or shame, I immediately offered my assistance to the unhappy person, who thankfully accepted it, and putting himself under my conduct, begged me to convey him to some tavern where he might send for a surgeon, being, as he said, faint with loss of blood. He seemed indeed highly pleased at finding one who appeared in the dress of a gentleman, for as to all the rest of the company present, their outside was such that he could not wisely place any confidence in them. I took the poor man by the arm, and led him to the tavern where we kept our rendezvous, as it happened to be the nearest at hand. A surgeon happening luckily to be in the house, immediately attended and applied himself to dressing his wounds which I had the pleasure to hear were not likely to be mortal. This surgeon, whose name I have forgot, though I remember it began with an R, had the first character in his profession, and was surgeon-surgeon to the king. He had moreover many good qualities, and was very generous and good-natured man, and ready to do any service to his fellow-creatures. He offered his patient the use of his chariot to carry him to his inn, and at the same time whispered in his ear that if he want any money, he would furnish him. The poor man was not now capable of returning thanks for this generous offer, for having had his eyes for some time steadfastly on me, he threw himself back in his chair, crying, "'Oh, my son! my son!' and then he fainted away. Many of the people present imagined this accident had happened through his loss of blood. But I, 
who at the same time began to recollect the features of my father, was now confirmed in my suspicions, and satisfied that it was he himself who appeared before me. I presently ran to him, raised him in my arms, and kissed his cold lips with the utmost eagerness. Here I must draw a curtain over a scene which I cannot describe, for though I did not lose my being, as my father for a while did, my senses were, however, so overpowered with affright and surprise, that I am a stranger to what passed during some minutes, and indeed till my father had again recovered from his swoon, and I found myself in his arms, both tenderly embracing each other, while the tears trickled apace down the cheeks of each of us. Most of those present seemed affected by this scene, which we, who might be considered as the actors in it, were desirous of removing from the eyes of all spectators as fast as we could. My father therefore accepted the kind offer of the surgeon's chariot, and I attended him in it to his inn. When we were alone together, he gently upbraided me for having neglected to write him during so long a time, but entirely omitted the mention of that crime which had occasioned it. He then informed me of my mother's death, and insisted on my returning home with him, saying that he had long suffered the greatest anxiety on my account, that he knew not whether he had most feared my death or wished it, since he had so many more dreadful apprehensions for me. At last, he said, a neighboring gentleman, who had just recovered a son from the same place, informed him where I was, and that to reclaim me from this course of life was the sole cause of his journey to London. He thanked heaven he had succeeded so far as to find me out by means of an accident which had like to have proved fatal to him, and had the pleasure to think he partly owed his preservation to my humanity, which he professed himself to be more delighted than he should have been with my filial piety, if I had known that the object of my care was my own father. Vice had not so depraved my heart as to excite it in an insensibility of so much paternal affection, though so unworthily bestowed. I presently promised to obey his commands in my return home with him, as soon as he was able to travel, which indeed he was in a very few days, by the assistance of that excellent surgeon who had undertaken his cure. The day preceding my father's journey, before which time I scarce ever left him, I went to take my leave of some of my most intimate acquaintance, particularly of Mr. Watson, who dissuaded me from burying myself, as he called it, out of a simple compliance with the fond desires of a foolish old fellow. Such solicitations, however, had no effect. Such solicitations, however, had no effect, and I once more saw my own home. My father now greatly solicited me to think of marriage, but my inclinations were utterly averse to any such thoughts. I had tasted of love already, and perhaps you know the extravagant excess of that most tender and most violent passion. Here the old gentleman paused, and looked earnestly at Jones, whose countenance, within a minute's space, displayed the extremities of both red and white, upon which the old man, without making any observations, renewed his narrative. Being now provided with all the necessities of life, I betook myself once again to study, and that with a more inordinate application than I had ever done formerly. The books which now employed my time solely were those, as well antient as modern, which treat of true philosophy, a word which is by many thought to be the subject only of farce and ridicule. I now read over the works of Aristotle and Plato, 
with the rest of those inestimable treasures which antient Greece had bequeathed to the world. These authors, though they instructed me in no science by which men may promise to themselves to acquire the least riches or worldly power, taught me, however, the art of despising the highest acquisitions of both. They elevate the mind, and steel and harden it against the capricious invasions of fortune. They not only instruct in the knowledge of wisdom, but confirm men in their habits, and demonstrate plainly that this must be our guide, if we propose ever to arrive at the greatest worldly happiness, or to defend ourselves with any intolerable security against the misery which everywhere surrounds and invests us. To this I added another study, compared to which all the philosophy taught by the wisest heathens is little better than a dream, and is indeed as full of vanity as the silliest jester ever pleased to represent it. This is that divine wisdom which is alone to be found in the holy scriptures, for they impart to us knowledge and assurance of things much more worthy our attention than all which this world can offer to our acceptance. Of things which heaven itself hath condescended to reveal to us, and to the smallest knowledge of which the highest human wit unassisted could never ascend. I began now to think that all the time I had spent with the best heathen writers was little more than labor lost, for, however pleasant and delightful their lessons may be, or however adequate to the right regulation of our conduct with respect to this world only, yet, when compared with the glory revealed in Scripture, their highest documents will appear as trifling, and of as little consequence, as the rules by which children regulate their childish little games and pastimes. True it is that philosophy makes us wiser, but Christianity makes us better men. Philosophy elevates and steals the mind, Christianity softens and sweetens it. The former makes us the objects of human admiration, and the latter of divine love. That ensures us of temporal, but this an eternal happiness. But I am afraid I tire you with my rhapsody. Not at all, cries Partridge. Blood forbid we should be tired with good things. I had spent, continued the stranger, about four years in the most delightful manner to myself, totally given up to contemplation, and entirely unembarrassed with the affairs of the world, when I lost the best of fathers, and one whom I so entirely loved that my grief at his loss exceeds all description. I now abandoned my books, and gave myself up for the whole month to the effects of melancholy and despair. Time, however, the best physician of the mind, at length brought me relief. Ay, ay, tempus edex rerum, said Partridge. I then, continued the stranger, betook myself again to my former studies, which I may say perfected my cure, for philosophy and religion may be called the exercises of the mind and when this is disordered, they are as wholesome as exercise can be to a distempered body. They do indeed produce similar effects with exercise, for they strengthen and conform the mind, till man becomes, in the noble strain of Horace, Fortis et incepso totus teres et teque rotundus, externi neg quid valet per lave morare, in quem manca rut semper fortuna meaning, firm in himself, who on himself relies, polished and round, who runs his proper course, and breaks misfortune with superior force. Mr. Francis. 
Here Jones smiled at some conceit which intruded itself into his imagination. But the stranger, I believe, perceived it not, and proceeded thus. My circumstances were now greatly altered by the death of that best of men. For my brother, who was now become master of the house, differed so widely from me in his inclination, and our pursuits of life had been so very various, that we were the worst company to each other. But what made our living together still more disagreeable was the little harmony which could subsist between the few who resorted to me, and the numerous train of sportsmen who often attended my brother from the field to the table. For such fellows, besides the noise and nonsense with which they persecute the ears of sober men, endeavor always to attack them with affront and contempt. This was so much the case, that neither I myself nor my friends could ever sit down to a meal with them without being treated with derision, because we were unacquainted with the phrases of sportsmen. For men of true learning, and almost universal knowledge, always compassionate the ignorance of others, but fellows who excel in some little, low, contemptible art, are always certain to despise those who are unacquainted with that art. In short, we soon separated, and I went, by the advice of a physician, to drink the bath-waters, for my violent affliction, added to a sedentary life, had thrown me into a kind of paralytic disorder, for which those waters are accounted an almost certain cure. The second day after my arrival, as I was walking by the river, the sun shone so intensely hot, though it was early in the year, that I retired to the shelter of some willows, and sat down by the riverside. Here I had not been seated long before I heard a person on the other side of the willows sighing and bemoaning himself bitterly. On a sudden, having uttered a most impious oath, he cried, I am resolved to bear it no longer, and he directly threw himself into the water. I immediately started, and ran towards the place, calling at the time as loudly as I could for assistance. An angler happened, luckily, to be a-fishing a little below me, though some very high sedge had hid him from my sight. He immediately came up, and both of us together, not without some hazard of our lives, drew the body to the shore. At first we perceived no sign of life remaining, but having held the body up by the heels, for we soon had assistance enough, it discharged a vast quantity of water at the mouth, and at length began to discover some symptoms of breathing, and little afterwards to move both its hands and its legs. An apothecary, who happened to be present among others, advised that the body, which seemed now to have pretty well emptied itself of water, and which began to have many convulsive motions, should be directly taken up and carried into a warm bed. This was accordingly performed, the apothecary and myself attending. As we were going towards the inn, for we knew not the man's lodging, luckily a woman met us, who, after some violent screaming, told us that the gentleman lodged at her house. When I had seen the man safely deposited there, I left him to the care of the apothecary, who, I suppose, used all the right methods with him, for the next morning I heard he had perfectly recovered his senses. I then went to visit him, intending to search out, as well I could, the cause of his having attempted so desperate an act and to prevent, as far as I was able, his pursuing such wicked intentions for the future. I was no sooner admitted into his chamber than we both instantly knew each other, for who should this person be but my good friend Mr. Watson? Here I will not trouble you with what passed at our first interview, for I would avoid prolixity as much as possible. Pray, let us hear it all, cries Partridge. 
I want mightily to know what brought him to Bath. You shall hear everything material, answered the stranger, and then proceeded to relate what we shall proceed to write, after we have given a short breathing time to both ourselves and the reader. Chapter fourteen, in which the man of the hill concludes his history. Mr. Watson, continued the stranger, very freely acquainted me that the unhappy situation of his circumstances, occasioned by a tide of ill luck, had in a manner forced him to our resolution of destroying himself. I now began to argue seriously with him, in opposition to this heathenish, or indeed diabolical, principle of the lawfulness of self-murder, and said everything which occurred to me on the subject, but, to my great concern, it seemed to have very little effect on him. He seemed not at all to repent of what he had done, and gave me reason to fear that he would make a second attempt of the like horrible kind. When I had finished my discourse, instead of endeavouring to answer my arguments, he looked me steadfastly in the face, and with a smile, said, "'You are strangely altered, my good friend, since I remember you.' I question whether any of our bishops could have made a better argument against suicide than you have entertained me with. But unless you can find somebody who will lend me a cool hundred, I must either hang, or drown, or starve, and in my opinion the last death is the most terrible of the three. I answered him very gravely that I was indeed altered since I had seen him last, that I had found leisure to look into my follies and to repent of them. I then advised him to pursue the same steps, and at last concluded with an assurance that I myself would lend him a hundred pound, if it would be of any service to his affairs, and he would not put it into the power of a die to deprive him of it. Mr. Watson, who seemed almost composed in slumber by the former part of my discourse, was roused by the latter. He seized my hand eagerly, gave me a thousand thanks, and declared I was a friend indeed, adding that he hoped I had a better opinion of him than to imagine he had profited so little by experience as to put any confidence in those damned dice which had so often deceived him. No, no, cries he, let me but once handsomely be set up again, and if ever fortune makes a broken merchant of me afterwards, I will forgive her. I very well understood the language of setting up and broken merchant. I therefore said to him, with a very grave face, Mr. Watson, you must endeavour to find out some business or employment by which you may produce yourself a livelihood, and I promise you, could I see any probability of being repaid thereafter, I would advance a much larger sum than what you have mentioned, to equip you in any affair and honourable calling. But as to gaming, besides the baseness and wickedness of making it a profession, you are really, to my own knowledge, unfit for it and it will end in your certain ruin. "'Why, now, that's strange,' answered he. "'Neither you nor any of my friends would ever allow me to know anything of the matter, and yet I believe I am as good a hand at every game as any of you all. And I heartily wish I was to play with you only for your whole fortune. I should desire no better sport, and I would let you name your game into the bargain. But come, my dear boy, you have the hundred in your pocket?' I answered I had only a bill for fifty, which I delivered him, and promised to bring the rest next morning, and after giving him a little more advice, took my leave. I was indeed better than my word, for I returned to him that very afternoon, 
When I entered the room, I found him sitting up on his bed at cards with a notorious gamester. This sight, you will imagine, shocked me not a little, to which I may add the mortification of seeing my bill delivered by him to his antagonist, and thirty guineas only given in exchange for it. The other gamester presently quitted the room, and then Watson declared he was ashamed to see me. But, says he, I find luck runs so damnably against me that I will resolve to leave off play for ever. I have thought of the kind proposal you made me ever since, and I promise you there shall be no fault in me if I do not put it in execution. Though I had no great faith in his promises, I produced him the remainder of the hundred in consequence of my own, for which he gave me a note, which was all I ever expected to see in return for my money. We were prevented from any further discourse, at present, by the arrival of the apothecary, who, with much joy in his countenance, and without even asking his patient how he did, proclaimed that there was great news arrived in a letter to himself, which he said would shortly be public, that the Duke of Monmouth was landed in the west with a vast army of Dutch, and that another vast fleet hovered over the coast of Norfolk, and was to make a descent there in order to favour the duke's enterprise with a diversion on that side. This apothecary was one of the greatest politicians of his time. He was more delighted with the most paltry packet than with the best patient, and the highest joy he was capable of he received from having a piece of news in his possession an hour or two sooner than any other person in the town. His advices, however, were seldom authentic, for he would swallow almost anything as the truth a humour which many made use of to impose upon him. Thus it happened with what he at present communicated, for it was known within a short time afterwards that the duke was really landed, but that his army consisted of only a few attendants, and as to the diversion in Norfolk it was entirely false. The apothecary stayed no longer in the room than while he acquainted us with his news, and then, without saying a syllable to his patient on any other subject, departed to spread his advices all over the town. Events of this nature in the public are generally apt to eclipse all private concerns. Our discourse therefore now became entirely political. For my own part, I had been for some time very seriously affected with the danger to which the Protestant religion was so visibly exposed under a popish prince, and thought the apprehension of it alone sufficient to justify that insurrection, for no real security can ever be found against the persecuting spirit of popery when armed with power, except by the depriving it of that power, as woeful experience presently showed. You know how King James behaved after getting the better of this attempt, how little he valued either the royal word, or coronation oath, or the liberties and rights of his people. But all had not the sense to foresee this at first, and therefore the Duke of Monmouth was weakly supported. Yet all could feel when the evil came upon them, and therefore all united at last to drive out the king against whose exclusion a great party among us had so warmly contended during the reign of his brother, and for whom they now fought with such zeal and affection. "'What you say,' interrupted Jones, "'is very true.' and it has often struck me as the most wonderful thing I ever read of in history, that so soon after this convincing experience which brought our whole nation to join so unanimously in expelling King James for the preservation of our religion and liberties, 
there should be a party among us mad enough to desire the placing his family again on the throne. "'You are not in earnest,' answered the old man. "'There can be no such party. "'As bad an opinion as I have of mankind, "'I cannot believe them infatuated to such a degree. "'There may be some hot-headed papists led by their priests "'to engage in this desperate cause and think it a holy war.' But that Protestants, that are members of the Church of England, should be such apostates, such fellows de se, that I cannot believe it. No, no, young man, acquainted as I am with what has passed in the world for these last thirty years, I cannot be so imposed upon to credit so foolish a tale, but I see you have a mind to sport with my ignorance. Can it be possible, replied Jones? that you have lived so much out of the world as not to know that during that time there have been two rebellions in favour of the son of king james one of which is now actually raging in the very heart of the kingdom at these words the old gentleman started up and in a most solemn tone of voice conjured jones by his maker to tell him if what he said was really true which the other as solemnly affirming he walked several turns about the room in a profound silence then cried then laughed and at last fell down upon his knees and blessed god in a loud thanksgiving prayer for having delivered him from all society with human nature which could be capable of such monstrous extravagances after which being reminded by jones that he had broke off his story he resumed it again in this manner as mankind in the days i was speaking of was not yet arrived at that pitch of madness which i find they are capable of now in which to be sure i have only escaped by living alone and at distance from the contagion there was a considerable rising in favour of monmouth and my principal strongly inclined me to take the same part i determined to join him and mr watson from different motives concurring in the same resolution for the spirit of a gamester will carry a man as far upon such an occasion as the spirit of patriotism we soon provided ourselves with all necessities and went to the duke at bridgewater the unfortunate event of this enterprise you are i conclude as well acquainted with as myself i escaped together with mr watson from the battle at siegemore in which i received a slight wound we rode near forty miles together on the exeter road and then abandoning our horses scrambled as well as we could through the fields and by-roads till we arrived at a little wild hut on the common where a poor old woman took all the care of us she could and dressed my wound with salve which quickly healed it pray sir was there a wound says partridge the stranger satisfied him it was in his arm and then continued his narrative here sir said he mr watson left me the next morning in order as he pretended to get us some provision from the town of columpton but can i relate it or can you believe it this mr watson this friend this base barbarous treacherous villain betrayed me to a party of horse belonging to king james and at his return delivered me into their hands the soldiers being six in number had now seized me and were conducting me to the taunton jail but neither my present situation nor the apprehensions of what might happen to me were half so irksome to my mind as the company of my false friend who having surrendered himself was likewise considered as a prisoner though he was better treated as being to make his peace at my expense he was at first endeavoured to excuse his treachery 
but when he received nothing but scorn and upbraiding from me he soon changed his note abusing me as the most atrocious and malicious rebel and laid all his own guilt to my charge who as he declared i had solicited and even threatened him to make him take up arms against his gracious as well as lawful sovereign this false evidence for in reality he had been much the forwarder of the two stung me to the quick and raised an indignation scarce conceivable by those who have not felt it however fortune at length took pity on me for as we were got a little beyond wellington in a narrow lane my guards received a false alarm that nearly fifty of the enemy were at hand upon which they shifted for themselves and left me and my betrayer to do the same that villain immediately ran from me and i am glad he did or i should have certainly endeavoured though i had no arms to have executed vengeance on his baseness i was now once more at liberty and immediately withdrawing from the highway into the fields i travelled on scarce knowing which way i went and making it my chief care to avoid all public roads and all towns nay even the most homely houses for i imagined every human creature whom i saw desirous of betraying me at last after rambling several days about the country during which the fields afforded me the same bed and the same food which nature bestows on our savage brothers of the creation i at length arrived at this place where the solitude and wildness of the country invited me to fix my abode the first person with whom i took up my habitation was the mother of this old woman with whom i remained concealed till the news of the glorious revolution put an end to all my apprehensions of danger and gave me an opportunity of once more visiting my own home and of inquiring a little into my affairs which i soon settled as agreeably to my brother as to myself having resigned everything to him for which he paid me the sum of a thousand pounds and settled on me an annuity for life his behaviour in this last instance as in all others was selfish and ungenerous i could not look on him as my friend nor indeed he desired that i should so i presently took my leave of him as well as my other acquaintances and from that day to this my history is little better than a blank and is it possible sir said jones that you have resided here from that day to this oh no sir answered the gentleman i have been a great traveller and there are few parts of europe with which i am not acquainted i have not sir cried jones that assurance to ask it of you now indeed it would be cruel after so much breath as you have already spent but you will give me leave to wish for some further opportunity of hearing the excellent observations which a man of your sense and knowledge of the world must have in so long a course of travels indeed young gentleman answered the stranger i will endeavour to satisfy your curiosity on this head likewise as far as i am able jones attempted fresh apologies but was prevented and while he and partridge sat with greedy and impatient ears the stranger proceeded as in the next chapter chapter fifteen a brief history of europe and a curious discourse between mr jones and the man of the hill in italy the landlords are very silent in france they are more talkative but yet civil in germany and holland they are generally very impertinent and as for their honesty i believe it is pretty equal in all those countries the lacroix à louange are sure to lose no opportunity of cheating you and as for the postilions i think they are pretty much alike all the world over 
These, sir, are the observations on men which I made in my travel, for these were the only men I ever conversed with. My design, when I went abroad, was to divert myself by seeing the wondrous variety of prospects, beasts, birds, fishes, insects, and vegetables, with which God has been pleased to enrich the several parts of this globe, a variety which, as it must give great pleasure to a contemplative beholder, so doth it admirably display the power and wisdom and goodness of the Creator. Indeed, to say the truth, there is but one work in his whole creation that doth him any dishonor, and with that I have long since avoided holding any conversation. You will pardon me, cries Jones, but I have always imagined that there is in this very work you mention as great variety as in all the rest, for, besides the difference of inclination, customs, and climates have, I am told, introduced the utmost diversity into human nature. Very little indeed, answered the other. Those who travel in order to acquaint themselves with the different manners of men might spare themselves much pains by going to a carnival at Venice. For there they will see at once all which they can discover in the several courts of Europe. The same hypocrisy, the same fraud, in short, the same follies and vices dressed in different habits. In Spain these are equipped with much gravity, in Italy with vast splendor. In France, a knave is dressed like a fop, in the northern countries, like a sloven. But human nature is everywhere the same, everywhere the object of detestation and scorn. As for my own part, I passed through all these nations, as you perhaps may have done, through a crowd at a shoe-jostling to get by them, holding my nose with one hand and defending my pockets with another, without speaking a word to any of them, while I was pressing on to see what I wanted to see, which, however entertaining it might be in itself, scarce made me amends for the trouble the company gave me. Did not you find some of the nations among which you travelled less troublesome to you than others? said Jones. Oh, yes, replied the old man. The Turks were much more tolerable to me than the Christians, for they are men of profound taciturnity, and never disturb a stranger with questions. Now and then, indeed, they bestow a short curse upon him, or spit in his face as he walks in the streets. But then they have done with him, and a man may live an age in their country without hearing a dozen words from them. But of all the people I ever saw, heaven defend me from the French, with their damned prate and civilities, and doing the honor of their nation to strangers, as they are pleased to call it, but indeed setting forth their own vanity. They are so troublesome, that I had infinitely rather pass my life with the Hottentots than set my foot in Paris again. They are a nasty people, but their nastiness is mostly without, whereas in France, in some other nations that I won't name, it is all within, and makes them stink much more to my reason than that of Hottentots does to my nose. Thus, sir, I have ended the history of my life. For as to all that series of years during which I have lived retired here, it affords no variety to entertain you, and may be almost considered as one day. The retirement has been so complete that I could hardly have enjoyed a more absolute solitude in the deserts of Thavius than here in the midst of this populous kingdom. As I have no estate, I am plagued with no tenants or stewards. My annuity is paid me pretty regularly, 
as indeed it ought to be, for it is much less than what I might have expected in return for what I gave up. Visits I admit none, and the old woman who keeps my house knows that her place entirely depends on her saving me all the trouble of buying the things that I want, keeping off all solicitation or business from me, and holding her tongue whenever I am within hearing. As my walks are all by night, I am pretty secure in this wild, unfrequented place from meeting any company. Some few persons I have met by chance, and sent them home heartily frightened, as from the oddness of my dress and figure they took me for a ghost or a hobgoblin. But what has happened to-night shows that even here I cannot be safe from the villainy of man. For without your assistance I may not only have been robbed, but very probably murdered." Jones thanked the stranger for the trouble he had taken in relating his story, and then expressed some wonder how he could possibly endure a life of such solitude. "'In which,' says he, "'you may well complain of the want of variety. Indeed, I am astonished how you have filled up, or rather killed, so much of your time.' "'I am not at all surprised,' answered the other, "'that to one whose affections and thoughts are fixed on the world,' my hours should appear to have wanted employment in this place. But there is one single act for which the whole life of man is infinitely too short. What time can suffice for the contemplation and worship of that glorious, immortal, and eternal being, among the works of whose stupendous creation not only this globe, but even those numberless luminaries which we may here behold spangling all the sky, though they should many of them be suns lighting different systems of worlds, may possibly appear but as a few atoms opposed to the whole creation which we inhabit. Can a man, who by divine meditations is admitted, as it were, into the conversation of this ineffable, incomprehensible majesty, think days or years or ages too long for the continuance of so ravishing an honour? Shall the trifling amusements, the palling pleasures, the silly business of the world, roll away our hours too swiftly from us? And shall the pace of time seem sluggish to a mixed exercise in studies so high, so important, and so glorious? As no time is sufficient, so no place is improper for this great concern. On what object can we cast our eyes which may not inspire us with ideas of his power, of his wisdom, of his goodness. It is not necessary that the rising sun should dart his fiery glories over the eastern horizon, nor that the boisterous winds should rush from their caverns and shake the lofty forest, nor that the opening clouds should pour their deluges on the plains. It is not necessary, I say, that any of these should proclaim his majesty, there is not an insect, not a vegetable, of so low an order in the creation as not to be honored with bearing marks of the attributes of its great creator, marks not only of his power, but of his wisdom and goodness. Man alone, the king of this globe, the last and greatest work of the supreme being below the sun, man alone hath basely dishonored his own nature, and by dishonesty cruelty, ingratitude, and treachery, hath called his master's goodness in question, by puzzling us to account how a benevolent being should form so foolish and so vile an animal. 
Yet this is the being from whose conversation you think, I suppose, that I have been unfortunately restrained, and without whose blessed society life, in your opinion, must be tedious and insipid. The former part of what you said, replied Jones, I most heartily and readily concur, but I believe, as well as hope, that the abhorrence which you express for mankind in the conclusion is much too general. Indeed, you here fall into an error which in my little experience has, I have observed, to be a very common one, by taking the character of mankind from the worst and basest among them. Whereas, indeed, as an excellent writer observes, nothing should be esteemed as characteristical of a species, but what is to be found among the best and most perfect individuals of that species. This error, I believe, is generally committed by those who, from want of proper caution in the choice of their friends and acquaintance, have suffered injuries from bad and worthless men, two or three instances of which are very unjustly charged on all human nature. I think I had experience enough of it, answered the other. My first mistress and my first friend betrayed me in the basest manner, and in the matters which threatened to be of the worst of consequences, even to bring me to a shameful death. But you will pardon me, cries Jones, if I desire you to reflect who that mistress and who that friend were. What better, my good sir, could be expected in love derived from the stews, or in friendship first produced and nourished at a gaming-table? To take the characters of women from the former instance, or of men from the latter, would be as unjust as to assert that air is a nauseous and unwholesome element because we find it so in a jakes. I have lived but a short time in the world, and yet have known men worthy of the highest friendship, and women of the highest love. Alas, young man, answered the stranger, you have lived, you confess, but a very short time in the world. I was somewhat older than you when I was of the same opinion. You might have remained so still, replies Jones, if you had not been unfortunate, I will venture to say, incautious, in the placing your affections. If there was indeed much more wickedness in the world than there is, it would not prove such general assertions against human nature, since much of this arrives by mere accident, and many a man who commits evil is not totally bad and corrupt in his heart. In truth, none seem to have any title to assert human nature to be necessarily and universally evil, but those whose own minds afford them one instance of this nat natural depravity, which is not, I am convinced, your case. And such, said the stranger, will be always the most backward to assert any such thing. Knaves will no more endeavor to persuade us of the baseness of mankind than a highwayman will inform you that there are thieves on the road. This would indeed be a method to put you on your guard, and to defeat their own purposes. For which reason, though knaves, as I remember, are very apt to abuse particular persons, yet they never cast any reflection on human nature in general. The old gentleman spoke this so warmly, that as Jones despaired of making a convert, and was unwilling to offend, he returned no answer. The day now began to send forth its first streams of light, 
when Jones made an apology to the stranger for having stayed so long, and perhaps detained him from his rest. The stranger answered, he never wanted rest less than at present, for that day and night were indifferent seasons to him, and that he commonly made use of the former for the time of his repose, and of the latter for his walks and lucubrations. However, he said, it is now the most lovely morning, and if you can bear it any longer to be without your own rest and food, I will gladly entertain you with the sight of some very fine prospects which I believe you have not yet seen. Jones very readily embraced this offer, and they immediately set forward together from the cottage. As for Partridge, he had fallen into a profound repose just as the stranger had finished his story, for his curiosity was satisfied and the subsequent discourse was not forcible enough in its operation to conjure down the charms of sleep. Jones therefore left him to enjoy his nap, and as the reader may perhaps be at this season glad of the same favour, we will here put an end to the eighth book of our history. End of section 32 Recording by Nikki Sullivan, Chicago